My role is not to say what policy should be. My role is to say if these are the objectives that we as a society think that we want to try and achieve, what are the mechanisms that we can use to do that? During the pandemic, the Freshman 15, a cute but serious warning to college students, became the Quarantine 15, or the COVID-19. We were stuck inside, baking bread became one of the hottest trends, and there were much larger things to worry about than our waistlines. I'm your host, Carly Sheridan, and in today's episode of Women in Economics, we'll be exploring how public policy can keep us healthier and encourage better decision-making. Okay, look, do we need an episode devoted to rising obesity rates during a pandemic? Yes, and I'll tell you why. Firstly, a few extra pounds and obesity are two very different things. And while the internet did what it does best, poke fun at a situation that is anything but funny, fat phobia, eating disorders, and mental health struggles are all very serious issues. Today's guest, economist Rachel Griffith, has devoted much of her career to study the incentives and public policies that can be implemented to help us lead healthier and happier lives, benefiting both the individual, but also society at large. Another key facet of her work, both as a professor at the University of Manchester and as the research director at London's Institute for Fiscal Studies, or the IFS, is around communicating economics, providing training, securing funding, and building portfolios. To Griffith, it's about ensuring that the younger generation of economists are equipped to not only go into academia, but also civil service, media, or politics, because all of these pieces are interdependent on a healthy society in every sense of the word. At a high level, how can economics be applied to the choices we make? Economics is really a discipline that gives us a toolkit to answer questions, and you can use the toolkit to apply to any set of policies. So the policies that I've been most interested in really focus around how policy affects consumer choices. So really questions around what incentives do people have to make different choices? How can policy inform and form the choices that they're making? So for example, whether we should regulate advertising of junk foods, and is that an effective way of trying to help particularly like adolescents and children in poor households who have very poor diets to help them make better choices. And in order to answer that question, we need to understand both how those individuals respond to advertising, but also how firms themselves will respond if the government regulates advertising. And it's that second piece that economists uniquely think about and look at. My passion is about how you can use statistics combined with economic insights, so econometrics, to provide evidence for policymakers to make better decisions and to provide information and evidence for the general public to help inform the way that they elect policymakers and contribute to the policy debate. Econometrics is often the foundation of any economic forecasting, but what led or inspired you to apply it to public health and obesity specifically? There's kind of two ingredients. One is it's a big public policy issue. Governments are currently thinking about this, the rise in obesity, the evidence on excess sugar consumption and the problems that are arising from that and mental health problems and health problems in children are a compelling reason to think about it. But also, we have great data and I can see how I can use tools and economics to help answer those questions. I think as an academic, my role is not to say what policy should be. My role is to say 
if these are the objectives that we as a society think that we want to try and achieve, what are the mechanisms that we can use to do that? And so here, really the reason I got into that area is where we had this amazingly rich data, the supermarket scanner data, uh, which hadn't been exploited, had been very exploited in kind of marketing and pricing and uh, merger analysis, competition analysis, but had not really been brought into the arena to think about health. Supermarket scanner data is exactly that. It's a collection of data that captures detailed information on transactions at the point of sale. It can be used to track quantities sold of any given item, dates, product descriptions, turnover rates, and more. And it all comes from the tiny barcodes found on all consumer goods. According to a guide for processing supermarket scanner data released by Eurostat, the European Union's statistical office, between 10 and 25,000 different item codes are used in any given retailer. So not only is this amazingly rich data in terms of volume, it is also completely unbiased data. Why did you choose to focus so much on sugar within this data? One of the reasons that we focused on sugar is because there's a growing body of evidence that suggests that sugar consumption is incredibly high, well above medically recommended levels, and that it leads to big problems with people's physical and mental health that people themselves aren't taking account of when they decide to consume. So as economists, we think, who's best place to decide what you should eat? You are. Why should the government tell you what to eat? But if you're, say, a 13-year-old, and you're consuming twice as much sugar as the government's recommending, and that's leading you to slightly bug out and not do well at school, which means you're not going to get good grades, which means you're not going to get a good job, which means you're going to have troubles in later life. All of the costs of that excess consumption are not something that you think about when you decide to eat five chocolate bars today. There's clearly a role for either your parents or the government to take account of those future consequences. And there's a growing body of evidence that, particularly in poorer households, that poor nutritional decisions are really affecting social mobility, detrimental later life outcomes in important ways. If we think about wanting to protect the most vulnerable people in society and give children a chance to uh, you know, grow up and be productive members of society, that ensuring that they have a reasonably nutritious diet is important. Wherever you live in the world, obesity is, after all, a global issue. You've likely seen imagery on newscasts or otherwise of overweight people eating unhealthy foods, like burgers or bags of chips, drinking large sodas. The consensus here being implied that rising obesity rates are a direct correlation of excess calorie consumption. Griffith had started a project with a PhD student to explore the different food groups that had contributed to the rise of calorie consumption in the UK when the data presented them with something else entirely. So this student brought me this picture and it showed a decline in calories. And I said, well, this is wrong. We know that obesity has increased. We know that calories have increased. Like, how could that be? They finally convinced me that that was true in the data. So we documented very carefully the decline in calories. How could that be contemporaneous with rising obesity? So we do some sort of back of the envelope calculations about other changes that have happened and what they mean for energy consumption. For example, if you look at men, men have uh, changed occupations from more strenuous to less strenuous occupations. They've retired earlier, and what they do outside of work is less strenuous than what they do inside work. And they travel to work in different ways that are less strenuous. 
for women, women have gone from homework, like taking care of children and shopping, to sedentary market work. And that has been a big decline in calorie expenditure. And again, they have changed the way they travel. And those things alone almost rationalize the decline in calories. It's maybe not so surprising that we've seen a reduction in calories, but an increase in obesity, because the reduction in the amount of energy we expend in daily life has been even greater. And that's really important from a policy point of view, because if you keep on telling people you're eating too many calories, but they're reducing the amount of calories they eat, it still may be that they're eating too many calories. In 2015, Griffith became the first woman to serve as the president of the European Economic Association. Her presidential lecture that year, Gluttony and Sloth, presented these findings and explored the rise of obesity rates and its correlation to food markets. What were some of the other main takeaways here? The big takeaway from a lot of the work I've done on nutrition is a rather depressing one, which is that it's complicated and it's quite hard for the government to come in and really change people's behavior in a constructive way by one particular policy. There's no real silver bullet because you change one thing in one area and then something else adjusts. So, you know, if you want to stop children eating too much sugar, you ban advertising Well, one of the effects of banning advertising is right now firms compete in prices and they compete in advertising. You don't allow them to compete in advertising. What do they do? They compete more toughly in prices. Prices fall. People consume more because prices are cheaper. But food and our relationship to it is much more complex than that. And the changes in our society also plays a role here. Food is an intimate part of your entire life. You don't take decisions about what you eat and how you eat in isolation from what else is happening in your life. What's happened over like the last 30 years, the price of foods has fallen a lot. That's had huge welfare benefits to poor households in particular for whom food's a big part of their expenditure. So that's like super good news. Poor people can afford to eat much more cheaply than they used to. But other things have also been changing. So for example, it's much more common that Uh, all adults in a household work now. Both adults working mean that it's much more expensive in terms of time to prepare food. So there's been a big reduction in home-prepared food and a big increase in market-prepared food. And that's driven by many different things, partly by prices, but also partly by other choices that people are making about their time use. It's really that cost of time that's the bigger issue. So if you really want to influence uh, people's decision-making in this area, you need to be more holistic. Are there any examples in which a more holistic approach has provided positive results? There actually has been a very good news story in the UK, which is the city of Leeds has just for the first time recorded a decline in child obesity. One of the things that they've done there was in schools teaching kids about how to eat and how to live more healthily rather than just targeting the price of soda. So it's not to say that we shouldn't have, you know, a tax on the soda. It's just to say that that in itself isn't going to achieve what we want to achieve. We need to think about a more holistic set of policies. What are the links between public policy and, say, income brackets? Are certain policies designed to reach certain segments of the population more so than others? Most of the focus has been on poor households. So it's interesting because actually children in poor households and more wealthy households have equally bad diets, more or less. But the consequences of that are much worse in low-income households. Maybe it's that wealthier households are able to make compensatory investments, 
We're not sure, but it does seem that the consequences of a bad diet are much worse when you're in a low-income household than when you're in a high-income household. That's an interesting thing for us to try and understand better, to understand how policy can be more effective. Okay, so magic wand in hand, you have the ability to implement any kind of policy, be it around taxation, targeting, placement. What would you change? That's a great question. That isn't my job. I don't make policy. I do research to inform policymakers. On the other hand, if I could do anything, I would reinstate school playing fields. I would get kids getting more activity in school on a regular basis. While much of Griffith's work thus far has been rooted in obesity, these learnings and this approach to better public policy and better incentives around those policies can be applied in other areas and on a more macro level, targeting inequality and improving people's well-being in a general sense. So much of the work on nutrition, I think, is steered towards that, of thinking about children in particular having a good start in life, a good nutritious diet is a key part of that and giving them further life chances. But we've been looking a lot at understanding the way that different people are going to be affected by globalization, by different patterns of global trade agreements, and ensuring that policies are giving people in regions that are hard hit by those types of changes choices over the way they live their life. My research is turning a little bit more towards thinking about how we protect the most vulnerable people in society in a much broader sense than the traditional welfare system, thinking about policies to do with uh, nutrition, but also growth policies and innovation, corporate tax, income generation. Those policies have very big effects on the opportunities for the most vulnerable in society to think about the gender pay gap. A lot of the reasons we might care about the gender pay gap is because Women are often the key carers and breadwinners in poor households. So if you care about children in poverty, thinking about the opportunities that women have to have a good career and earn money for the family is a key way of thinking of getting children to have good life chances and get out of poverty. And so thinking about the kind of totality of policies that affect those decisions. Don't miss our next episode. We'll be hosting a special roundtable discussion focusing on the shifting role of monetary policies. Women in Economics is brought to you by UBS and the Center for Economic Policy Research, CEPR. It's hosted by me, Carly Sheridan, produced and sound engineered by Zoo Agency Berlin, with music provided by Artlist. Help us usher in this new era of economics by sharing the episode with a friend, relative, or colleague, and be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The featured persons and the Center for Economic Policy Research are not affiliated with UBS. This presentation is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice or the basis for making any investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed may not be those of UBS. UBS does not verify and does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of the information presented.